The Hamlet Podcast, episode 113. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanverty. We are reaching, finally, the end of this rather startling scene, Act 3, Scene 4, and indeed the end of this central act of the play. Hamlet has finally acknowledged the corpse of Polonius, lying where he fell, and admitted that he is sorry for what had happened. Now he explains what he's going to do about it. I will bestow him, and will answer well the death I gave him. So, again, good night. I must be cruel only to be kind. Thus bad begins and worse remains behind. One word more, good lady. Now, Hamlet doesn't quite mean he's going to put Polonius on a ship, bestow him, so much as stow the body somewhere safe, and remove it from Gertrude's chamber. In the first quarto, which seems to provide a lot of answers to the trickier portions of this corner of the play, Hamlet actually addresses the body and says, Come, sir, I'll provide for you a grave. He continues and tells Gertrude that he will answer well the death he gave him. This could mean that he'll explain his actions, or apologise, or eventually atone for the crime of having killed him. We shall have to see which of these, if any, comes to pass. But he gets straight back to business now, repeating, So, again, good night. He follows with one of the phrases that has become embedded in the library of oft-quoted lines from this play. I must be cruel only to be kind. He's been quite brutal to Gertrude throughout the scene, relentlessly making her confront her actions and her situation. The comparisons between her two husbands and the insistence of Claudius's villainy have been quite an intense onslaught, and Hamlet now explains his actions. He's only been this intense because he wants to try to save her in the battle he knows is coming. Some editors, chief among them the brilliant overseers of the Arden Shakespeare's most recent edition, suggest that the line makes more sense if it reads this instead of thus. So Hamlet says, I must be cruel only to be kind. This bad begins and worse remains behind. Certainly it makes very clear sense and ties the two lines explicitly together. I'm being this harsh to help you. This is the first action. Bad begins and worse remains behind. There's a lot more to come. And indeed, anyone who knows the play can attest to how few of Elsinore's inhabitants are going to survive. After the rhymed couplet of kind and behind, it feels like Hamlet is ready to exit. Perhaps he almost starts to do so, but then, in the Q2 text at least, he turns around with one more thing to say. He and Gertrude share the following line. Hamlet starts it. One word more, good lady, what shall I do? Gertrude's response. I'm not always a fan of restoring lines that have been contested or that tradition or history have removed, but in this case, giving Hamlet the first half of the line somehow makes Gertrude's fragment, What Shall I Do, more urgent and more connected, somehow less weak and floaty a response, because it incorporates it into the flow of the rhythm, and this means that she now sounds like she's interrupting Hamlet, insisting on his reply. No surprise, he has even more instructions for her. She says, what shall I do? And his response is, not this by no means that I bid you do. Let the bloat king tempt you again to bed, pinch wanton on your cheek, call you his mouse, and let him for a pair of reachy kisses or paddling in your neck with his damned fingers make you to ravel all this matter out, that I essentially am not in madness, but mad in craft. Twere good you let him know, for who that's but a queen 
fair, sober, wise, would from a paddock, from a bat, a gib, such dear concernings hide, who would do so? No, in despite of sense and secrecy, unpeg the basket on the house's top, let the birds fly, and like the famous ape, to try conclusions in the basket creep and break your own neck down. Here Hamlet is being entirely sarcastic. He begins by telling Gertrude that what follows is what she should not do. It is very much an opportunity for the performer to revisit the madness Hamlet has been pretending to experience. Hamlet still doesn't know what his mother is going to do, and so to an extent he's still testing her. Let's break it down and try to see what he's talking about. Gertrude has asked what she should do, and he responds immediately with, Not this, by no means that I bid you do. Don't do this, whatever you do. Don't let the king, the bloat king, tempt you again to bed. Hamlet frequently makes reference to Claudius's fondness for the drink. This time he calls him a bloat king. Not just fat, but clearly fat from excess. He's bloated. He's hoping Gertrude won't go to his bed tonight, as he has pleaded earlier in the scene. Sigmund Freud had a great deal to say about Hamlet, particularly in this scene, and the show notes will discuss his ideas in greater detail. Hamlet is fixated on what might happen in Claudius's bed, on how the king might touch his mother, pinch wanton on your cheek, call you his mouse, and let him for a pair of reachy kisses, or paddling in your neck with his damned fingers, make you to ravel all this matter out. The big concern is that Gertrude might spill the beans, that Claudius might cajole her into explaining everything that she's just heard, just by pinching her cheek, calling her cute nicknames, or for just a few kisses, or caressing her neck with his fingers. She might unravel the whole plot. Hamlet has a whole lexicon of unpleasant words to describe any and everything to do with Claudius's body and his sex life. Here his kisses are reachy, all of his drinking and his bloat mean that his breath smells like a swamp. His fingers are damned, and even a caress or a pinch from them is wanton. Understandable that Gertrude might think Hamlet is still a bit mad. He's still pulling no punches. But this is indeed the very thing that Hamlet wants her to keep to herself. For all of Claudius's attention, she must not unveil the truth, that he essentially is not in madness. Essentially, he is not mad. He's only pretending. He's angry and passionate and ready to kill, but he's not crazy. He is but mad in craft. It's all an act, a creation. Now the levels of Hamlet's sarcasm get even more confusing, as he says, "'Twere good you let him know. Sure, it'd be fine if she told Claudius everything. For who that's but a queen, fair, sober, wise, would from a paddock, from a bat, a gib, such dear concernings hide?' He's asking, what kind of a fair, sober, wise queen would keep such important information, or concernings, from a paddock, a bat, or a gib? These three things listed here are maybe a little confusing, primarily because their meanings aren't quite clear anymore. A paddock, rather than a horse's enclosure as we might understand it now, is in fact an old word for a frog or a toad. A bat was, and still is, a bat. And a gib, not a piece of machinery, is a very old word for a tomcat. Having redefined these words, we get a much clearer image of a queen telling her secrets to a toad, a bat or a mangy cat. 
Who would do so? Hamlet asks. We're left to answer for ourselves. A witch. A woman in league with the devil, unburdening her secrets or unravelling her stories to her familiar. Shakespeare had a fascination for witchcraft from his very early Henry VI right the way through to Macbeth and beyond. It's a very small reference here, but he simultaneously reduces Claudius to the status of a satanic familiar, one of these small, ugly little animals, and suggests that Gertrude is no better than a witch if she will share her knowledge with him. No, Hamlet continues, still telling her what she should not do. No, in despite of sense and secrecy, unpeg the basket on the house's top. Let the birds fly, and like the famous ape, to try conclusions, in the basket creep, and break your own neck down. Another deeply confusing image here, for which we have no helpful reference point. Hamlet seems to be referring to some kind of a story about an ape that took a cage full of birds up onto a roof. He let the birds fly, and then, as an experiment, to try conclusions, the ape climbs into the cage, or into the basket crept, jumped out from it and off the roof, and broke his neck when he fell down. Why Hamlet uses this particular story, one that clearly defies sense and secrecy, is anything but clear. We have no records of what the ape was doing, or where the roof even was, or who was responsible for the birds or the ape in the first place, but the general gist of the argument is that it would not be just evil, but blindly suicidal of Gertrude to tell Claudius any of what she knows. We've only one more episode to go in our discussion of this scene, and in it, Hamlet will reveal a little more of his plans and bid a final good night. How many times has he said good night by now? To his bewildered mother. I hope you'll join me for all of that next time. For now, be sure to check out the website, thehamletpodcast.com, for the show notes that cover everything from Freud to famous apes. I'm very grateful to the growing numbers of people who are engaging with the podcast on Twitter, where you can follow at Hamlet Podcast. Do please keep spreading the word, and I'll speak to you next time.